Yo, I'm Shay Serrano. And I'm Brandon Jinx Jenkins. We have a new show called No Skips with Jinx and Shay. In it, we discuss the most unskippable albums in hip-hop history. New episodes drop on Thursdays, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Larry Wilmore. You are listening to Black on the Air. Appreciate you choosing this podcast to listen to. As always, try to have fun, smart conversations here with things I'm primarily interested in, and I hope that you are too. You never know what you're going to get here. We seem to be having a lot of directors on lately, but. You know, I love talking about film and writing and that. And we have another one this week. This is one of my favorites, you guys. Barry Jenkins, who um, has just directed a limited series called The Underground Railroad, based on Colson Whitehead's brilliant Pulitzer Prize winning book. And man, whew, this thing is amazing. It's on Amazon Prime. You guys really need to see it. But our conversation, so much fun. I can have conversations like the one that I had with Barry, I just had it recently, just just forever. As you could tell, we go on for about an hour. So I hope you enjoy that, especially for the people that are kind of interested in that area and everything. Barry, he's such an interesting filmmaker, such an artist too, and I think you'll enjoy that conversation. Yeah, since it over an hour, I won't take a lot of time right now. In fact, I'll keep it kind of light. Next week, though, when we come back, I don't know if we're on next week, but when we come back, I want to talk about what's going on in Texas. There's a lot of shit going on there. And I believe there there's an attack going on in the country right now over women's uh, reproductive rights. And that is very concerning to me. Something is going to happen in, in the next couple of years with the Supreme Court and everything. I think the right definitely has their targets on Roe v. Wade in an aggressive way that I've never seen in a while. And that Supreme Court, man, the you know conservatives, they were not fucking around. Uh, you talk about packing the court. They packed that, that motherfucker, man, with Mitch McConnell just changing the rules and not letting Obama have his pick because Gorsuch should have been an Obama pick and then uh, changing the rules again. So Trump got that extra pick for Amy Coney Barrett. That should have been a uh, Biden pick. There should be two other liberal judges instead of conservative ones. And believe me, that is no accident. It's purposeful. It's one of the reasons that I think conservatives get out to vote with the most fervor. I think they get out to vote with the most fervor over the issue of abortion more than any other issue and connect that to conservative judges because that's the issue that they care about most. There's other issues, too, that they want the conservative uh, bench to be leaning right. But that one, man, they are not fucking around. And I don't know if we have that same that same type of thing on the left. But whoo. This is going to be fight. 
I'll talk about it in detail. I, I want to do some more research on what's going on there before I start talking about it. But Texas is kind of where it's pretty bad right now, but it's happening in other places. So we'll talk about that next time. But right now, guys, my Lakers are in the playoffs. You know, this is a happy time for me <laughs> and it's fraught. I got a lot of basketball jitter. I'll call it a jitter, basketball jitter. So I'm very happy about that. And there's another thing going on that is very bizarre, guys. And I don't know what to think about this. So let me just give you a little context for it. So I'm not a conspiracy person, okay? I told you my whole theory for conspiracy. Some of you have quoted me out there, and I appreciate that. You know, where I believe uh, conspiracy theory, people that engage in conspiracy theories, they always want you, they demand evidence for the obvious, but then want you to swallow the preposterous. That's my kind of math <laughs> equation for how all conspiracies work, from the 9-11 to, you know, we didn't go to the moon, to whatever, you know. But, guys, what's going on with the whole alien thing right now? That used to live in this land of conspiracies, though I was always fascinated by UFOs and all this kind of stuff. Even when I was a kid, I read tons of books about this, the whole Roswell thing, fascinated about this. I've been on both sides where I go, mm, I don't know. I don't think this shit is real. And I've been on the other side was like, this shit is definitely real. There are, there are housing bodies somewhere, you know. I've been all over the place, you know, because we don't know whether to trust government in this situation. We know that government likes to cover shit and keep shit secret. But at the other hand, we also know shit gets out. You can't keep secrets for too long. But the the UFO, but and then there's also science. You know, what could actually um, be true scientifically? You know, could we actually physically be visited by other planets or whatever? I don't know. That seems kind of outrageous. Does life actually exist out there? That seems more likely than does someone visit us. Does life exist seems more likely than can someone visit us and would someone and has that already happened? There's been other theories of um, some of these, I think I made up years ago, where these interdimensional things where it's like these, let's call them anomalies that we're seeing and experiencing. They're not really craft from like deep in space going through a wormhole and getting here. They're actually existing in this space, but in a different dimension. And sometimes they cross dimensions and they become visible and then cross back in other dimensions and that type of thing. Some people think that they're time travelers. <laughs> oh my God, that they're time travelers that have come back to warn us about things. Some people think, uh, these aren't online. These, you know, these are what some people, some people think that they uh, like live in the bottom of the ocean and there have been reports of UFOs going into the ocean and not coming back. And it's like, what the fuck? What just happened? And some people think they're alien bases on the dark side of the moon. <laughs> you know, what to think? There's so much. It's crazy. And it's crazy, crazy, crazy. All of it is crazy. But, and then there's Area 51, of course, um, which is that where the government is hiding things? You know, Harry Reid came out talking about he saw some shit at Area 51. What shit, Harry? What kind of shit did you see at Area 51? Tell us. Stop speaking in riddles. You know, and now Obama is saying he wish he could say something. Well, say it, Obama. You're not president anymore. What is this riddle talk? You know, so I hate this. But something's happening, you guys. I don't remember the government going this far to acknowledge that there is shit really out there. 
and that there is shit that's really happening. And my head is in a tizzy because I'm like, well, what does this mean? What is something about to be revealed to us? Are we involved in like reverse engineering and technology or that type of thing? Was there some accidents that happened and maybe the other things are anomalies, but there are certain things that happened? Could it be possible that we we're visited? Maybe not by beings, but by drones, like the way we send a drone to Mars or something? I don't know, you guys. I really don't know what to think right now. I am in a very, very tough position. I have no idea what to think about this. I'm in the rare position right now where I feel anything could happen. Information could come out where we could find out, oh, no, this is all bullshit. Here's what's really going on. The government has a lot of secret shit, and they want you to think there's aliens out there to divert us away from their real secret shit, which is developing weapons, you know, that people have no guard against. So they want you to think there's aliens out there so they can develop stealth technology and stuff like that. And that's what's going on in Area 51. Completely believable. I got no problem with that theory. It does make sense. Doesn't explain sightings around the rest of the world, but it does explain things that maybe happen here. Then there's the other thing that I feel could happen too, where, although it's hard to believe there's a world conspiracy to not talk about something, that's hard to believe. But sometimes we know things tend to happen all at the same time around the world. I've talked about how I believe things cluster. We have clustering moments in history, you know. Art happens in clusters. Science happens in clusters. Uh, political movements kind of clusters. By cluster, I mean they all seem to happen around the same time, you know. Learning how to fly kind of happen different areas at the same time. Why? Why do we certainly think about flying at the same time? Who knows? What if this UFO thing, what if this information is revealed in the same way that it's real. What if this shit is real, you guys? Have we been just set up by COVID in some way to be ready to behave globally in the same way? I don't know. See, now my brain is going to weird places, you know. <sighs> but I know it would be a letdown for people if it's the first explanation. But what would happen if it is the second? I mean, if something really is out there, that is different. What does happen? You know, many of the theories are that they can't really share these things with us. This is what the theories were for the 50s and 60s, that the government can't really share things with us because it would cause chaos. People would ride in the streets. Why? The biggest reason is because people would have to rethink religion and the role religion plays in their life and whether or not that shit is real. Wow. Now that is something. And that's not entirely wrong. I think a lot of these existential questions about these tethers that we have in our lives, whether it be religious tethers, metaphysical or whatever, if there are these alien beings that are from another planet are going to probably overturn a lot of these ideas or make you rethink, maybe they'll make you believe in them more. Who knows? But shit is certainly not going to be the same. <laughs> shit is certainly not going to be the same if somehow we are face to face with an entirely new class of creatures. It would be fascinating. I'm all for it, though, you guys. I am all for it. I am all for expanding our ideas of what our universe is. You know, the universe has both gotten bigger and smaller. Smaller in the sense that everything is closer now to us. We have more access to information and that. 
but bigger in the sense of what we consider the universe to be more infinite now than it ever has been. The universe indeed is expanding. We, you know, as a culture, (laughs) the things we care about may not have expanded, but the universe certainly is. And it would be interesting if at this time when, especially here in America, there's so much going on culturally, we're at it. Some kind, we're at some kind of cultural transition right now. I don't know what it is, but I think years from now in the rear view, people might say, oh yeah, yeah, that shit was changing during that time. Wouldn't it be interesting though, if something like this happened right now during these turbulent times? Very interesting, food for thought. I thought I would put it out there. Let's keep our eyes open and see, see what happens, you guys. I mean, you never know. I never, we never thought there'd be a global pandemic like this and the whole world would be in lockdown. I mean, if this UFO thing turns out to be something, I'll have to get them on my podcast. That's what I'll do. I will, I will promise you, if it turns out to be something, <laughs> I, I want to get an alien, an actual alien on podcast because I got a lot of questions. So anyhow, there you go. That's what I got. Okay, we got Barry Jenkins coming up to talk about the Underground Railroad. But first, this. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. All right, welcome back, you guys. Um, it is my pleasure to welcome this gentleman to the show. I've admired his work for a while now. I mean, from the beautiful Moonlight, Bill uh, Street. I mean, everything he does is like this beautiful, just lush portrait. And uh, he's done it again with the limited series on Amazon, uh, The Underground Railroad, uh, based on the Colson Whitehead book that was a Pulitzer Prize winning. I believe. And uh, Mr. Barry Jenkins, welcome to Black on the Air. Hey, thank you for having me, man. It's a pleasure. It is such a pleasure. Um, you know, I'm a big fan. I gave you, I think I saw you at the WGA Awards. I like Barry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go take him, man. Take him down. Man, what an achievement this is. You have to feel proud uh, to have this uh, on the air right now. Yeah, yeah. I am proud, man, especially because it was. Uh, it was such a heavy, uh, such a heavy yeah. load to bear. Um, Absolutely, and and yet I do think that you know when I watch it or when when people watch it, you know all that effort is very clearly uh, on the screen. So yeah, I yeah. am proud of it. I think that's the best way to describe the feeling I have towards it. Yeah, that's great. When you can get it on the screen and all the effort is not off the screen, then that is a winning thing. Um, uh, it's funny because I hosted the National Book Awards. Uh, the year that Colson won for this for Underground Railroad. And uh, I remember at the time, you know, it was such a different environment, you know, than it is now. Yeah, we were just coming out of, I, I had just finished doing the nightly show, but we had just come out of a lot of the things with police and all that kind of stuff. And so a lot of, um, you know, I would say the undercurrent of racial issues was kind of blowing this. And we're kind of in that right now, you know, not not that it's ever gone away in my lifetime, you know, so to speak. Um, how did you know you wanted to make this? Were, were you a fan of the book when it came out? Did you get a, 
Did you know about it before uh, yeah, it came out? Or? Yeah, it was kind of a combination of all that. I had been a fan of Colson uh, since his first book, The Intuitionist, yeah. and I'd actually tried to adapt The Intuitionist around 2009, uh, 2010. Couldn't yeah. get a hold of it. Um, and as a kid, always been obsessed with the concept of the Underground Railroad. And yeah. when I first heard the words, I saw Black people on trains underground um, mm-hmm. because the education system uh, didn't fill in all the gaps <laughs> I was allowed to have that vision yes. um, for maybe a couple of weeks. And then we got to that chapter during Black History Month and I realized, mm-hmm. oh, this is what the Underground Railroad actually is. Uh, but that feeling I had um, yeah. as a kid, it always stayed with me. And so I heard about Colson's book before reading it. I just heard, oh, Colson Whitehead wrote a book about the Underground Railroad where the railroad is yeah. real. And I was like, oh, I have got to get my hands on that. And so I actually read the book uh, before it released and before Moonlight released as well. Oh, wow. And I just like jumped on Colson. I was like, bruh, you got to let me have this. Um, and so we met and I told him, I don't want to do it as, as a film. I want to do it as a limited series. And that was even before Moonlight premiered. And so this thing um, has been with me since before anybody uh, was aware of who Barry Jenkins uh, was, which I think is uh, wow. a really thing because it wasn't dictated by the success of that film. It was already in process. Absolutely, which is great, which really shows because you bring such a, I don't know, there's a, a familiarity maybe is the right word with with wanting to tell the story. I mean, it's such a, it is such an alive metaphor anyway, Underground Railroad, and the movie works on so many different levels with, I don't want to use the word fantasy as much as I think alternate is probably a better word, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but this notion of that underground railroad has fantastical elements that have to be the right tone in the same movie yeah. with the realities of slavery, correct? Yeah, correct. And, and you know, as you said, the book won the Pulitzer Prize and, and the National Book Award, I believe. So it's a damn good book, you know, and yeah. Colson's done, you know, a lot of really diligent work to make sure that in the, you know, alternate, um, alternate reality or, or the alternate, alternative history that is still based in some element of truth. And so I love that no one levitates in this book um, to a certain degree. Um, And I even said when we were making the film or making the show, excuse me, yeah, you know, no one's going to levitate and I want real trains running through actual tunnels. Uh, Again, because when I was a kid, my granddad was a longshoreman and I would see him put on his hard hat and his steel toe boots and go off to work. And I thought, oh yeah, people, men like him, they built the Underground Railroad. And I think in adapting the book to the screen visually, I wanted to translate the things that I saw as a child. Yeah, and it is a challenge, you know, as I'm watching it. And the book is so fascinating too. And it is funny how you think some things might be able to work in a novel, but can they really work when you dramatize it? Because there is, and you know this as a director, putting something on its feet is completely different than when it's on the page. <laughs> as every rehearsal, you know, you find that out, right? You know? Yep. Did you have any concerns about, like, were you intimidated by any of this, Barry, when you were first uh, uh, putting pen to paper and, and kind of planning out this whole limited series? Yeah, I was intimidated by uh, two different ways. The scale of it, for sure. You know, I think a, a feature film was a very bespoke process. You have, you know, four months to try to figure out 40 scenes. Um, so you can give each scene a, a, a great level of detail. It's almost like right, going to a private diligence. school. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like going to a private school where you have one teacher for every 15 students. Then you go to the big public school. Now you got one teacher for every 50 students. And so it's just much more difficult to give that same kind of bespoke education, to give that same attention. So 
in that degree, I thought, oh, this is terrifying. I don't know how we're going to manage this. And then, of course, the subject matter um, itself is very, very delicate, very triggering, very explosive. And I knew even though I don't have the same amount of time that I normally would have to work on each of these scenes, if this was a feature film, I have to almost give them more time uh, because the scenes themselves are so incendiary. The images are so triggering that they demand this extra special attention. What was the writing process like? Did you work with Colson on the writing process or did he advise you at all? Was he just there as a safety beacon if you needed him? What was that like? He was there as a safety beacon. You know, he was mm-hmm. really cool. You know, one, he was off writing another novel that would yeah. win him a second Pulitzer Prize <laughs> uh, and the Nickel Boys. <laughs> yeah, but he's a fan of of cinema. And, you know, Colson is, is, uh, is very good about, what, what do the kids say? Stay in your lane. You know, he was like, the book is mine and the show is yours. As you said, as you put That's it so awesome. eloquently, I will be a safety beacon if you need to know more about this mm-hmm. or more about that, or right. if you have questions about anything, reach out to me. And so we uh, we adapted, or not adapted, but we began the process in a writer's room. There were about five or six of us. And you know it was eight weeks, which is a really intense uh, uh, writing room process. And we just pulled the book apart and tried to figure out, as you were saying, what can go from the page to the screen and, and travel uh, transition intact? And then what else, where, where can we extend off of it? And anytime we were going to veer away from the narrative, I would reach out to Colson and go, what do you think of this? It's your world, your characters. Does this fit? And, uh, and every time he was very supportive. There was only one idea I had that he, that he shot down. It was a terrible idea. I think oh, I'm thinking of it, it now in hindsight. Um, <laughs> this, there's like the character Grace, uh, Fanny yes. Briggs Great character. in the show. Um, I, I just thought, oh, maybe there's a world where she and this kid Homer are fraternal twins. Uh, because there were these instances where there were brothers and sisters, you know, who were separated. You know, their families were split up all the time. What if there's a way that you can draw this line where you realize very late in the narrative that these two were these twins who were separated at birth and Grace ended up on the run and Homer, unfortunately, ended up with Ridgeway. But it was a terrible idea. He shot it down very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> that is a interesting thought, though. How do you determine, especially in a writer's room, which is very interesting too. Like what makes, what's going to get in and what actually doesn't make it there? How do you make that determination? What needs to be in there? Like what can't knock it in and what, mm, if we get it in, that'll be nice. Yeah. It kind of works through, uh, I try to work from my gut. You know, the first time I read the the novel already, I'm seeing things. And and if I can see it, because, you know, you get a visual sense from the beginning, right? Exactly. Because it's show versus tell, you know, a novel is everything's being told. And then in cinema, theoretically, everything is being shown. So if I can see things that this author is telling me, boom, that's in. And then it's like, what's the organizing principle? What, what is the story about for me? And in the case of this book, it was about this idea of parenting, you know, this relationship between a mother and a daughter. And so with the character Grace, for example, I thought we needed to insert this character who isn't in the book, because even though Cora can't learn the biography of why her mother abandoned her, air quotes, this radio, why her mother abandoned her, she can learn through going through her own mothering experience you know, what it demands of a person to be a mother, the the sacrifices you were forced to make sometimes. So that was one where it's like, okay, cool. This is completely outside the narrative of the book, but it's working towards this thing that is very much in the book. So, so that lives. Um, and then beyond that, it's consensus, but not like an intellectual consensus. 
you know, it's, it's not like we're all taking a vote. Okay, there's six of us or there's seven of us. The four of us <laughs> right. want this thing it's in. It's yeah. more about as we talk, we realize we're all gravitating towards, towards the same things. And this idea of the great spirit was something that everyone in the room was just sort of uh, enraptured by. Um, and so that was one of those things where it was like, yeah, that's going to make it in. Um, and then you go through the process and there's some shit that we wrote scripts for that we just couldn't afford to make. Um, wow. And so it's, it's a very tricky process. Wow, that is complicated. Yeah, um, one of the things I'm struck by is um, all the brutality that is on s- screen, and mm-hmm. I've always insisted, and I've even told my kids this. I said, no matter how brutal a depiction is of that time, it's not as brutal as it actually was because mm-hmm. people really actually can't take it. Mm-hmm. People actually can't take how brutal those times were, and mm-hmm. there's some brutal depictions of how people are treated. Well, you have one particular sequence. Here's what's interesting: the book actually doesn't go as far, I think, as you do. <laughs> you know, when, I, I, when the slavers returned, that sequence, you know. But but I'm like, yes, Barry, you have to show the horrors of this place, you know, in real terms. But but go ahead. Yeah. Well, it's a couple of things. It's, it's show versus tell. You know, yeah. I, I don't have the, the luxury of telling an audience, this thing happened and this is how it felt. Yeah. Know, the only tools at my disposal are to show, you know, Colson um, is a very, uh, is a very uh, honest, but also a very respectful writer, respectful of, the, of the, the reader's experience, because I've heard him describe those passages. I forgot that they're so short in the book. You know, the, the beating of the boy Chester is, I believe, like two lines. Oh, and it's you, you can miss yeah. it. It you goes can, by so fast. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And the and the emulation of Big Anthony, the scene you, you were alluding to, is only like one line, um, I believe. And yes. yet those things are a catalyst. My my main character has given yeah. up all hope. It takes an extreme act to motivate her to go. You know what? No, I can't give up. This is too much. I must leave this place. Um, and so I don't have the luxury of telling them. Colson describes it as dead prose because he can write. I mean, he can write a sentence. I mean, he can write his ass off, yes. but when he when he comes upon these moments of brutality, he mm-hmm. deadens his prose. He it's does, just yeah. information. He just gives mm-hmm. you the information, and then he moves through it. You know, I don't know if there's a an I there's an there's a way of uh, relaying dead imagery. Uh, although I will say, my my earliest uh, dealings with these kinds of images are these photos from the aftermath of lynchings in the Jim Crow South. And you always see a group of white spectators who are looking directly at the camera, which is really interesting for the way um, I've, I've gravitated towards making my work. And then my ancestor is in the background, already passed, already brutalized, inanimate. And I thought there was something almost disassociative about that, about never having to really understand and really process what was done. We always get there in the aftermath. And so I thought this is an opportunity, uh, one, because it is... It is a motivator for my character. And that was the principle for me. If the trauma is a motivator for my character to act, then I will show it. And then in showing it, what else can I say about these images? Because after that first episode, as we go on, repeatedly, repeatedly, when there are acts of brutality, we either cut away and imply it with sound, or we let a character tell the story, but we don't cut to the thing they are are telling, the thing they are saying. But in that first chapter, I felt it was very necessary for the audience to experience, you know, what my character was experiencing so they can understand why she makes the choice to run. Yes, it's very effective, both from a a storytelling point of view and I think from an historical point of view. One of the other things about this and even Colson's work, too, is 
so much has been lost during that period, you know. And that's what I meant to say earlier, too. Like, And I'm always fascinated by just the ordinary lives of people. Uh, some of the fantastical things, of course, but the ordinary lives of people are very interesting to me. And to know that there are characters like Hero, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. existed there and the conductor. And many of these types of characters are the head of the people in Indiana there at the table. Oh, Gloria and John Valentine. I, I love yeah. that scene. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. made me think of the picnics when I was a kid. We had this mm-hmm. thing called the Evanston picnics that were here in Pasadena, the black people that moved to Los Angeles and wanted to keep that touch. It was it, almost exactly like that scene, you know, that kind of rich history. Well, well, I'm sure it's a it's a tradition that is that is handed down, you know, from those times. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to make this as a television show and not as a feature film. Yes. So that we can have the space to have moments like that. And that episode's a little bit long, you know, but I'm like, but shit, people have gone through hell to get here. Literally, you know, yeah. let's give them let's a, a moment exactly, <laughs> yes. to yes. sit at this picnic and watch these beautiful black people drink the wine that they have yes. grown themselves, you know. Did you have any... Uh... Issues with actors at all? Uh, oh, by the way, when did you shoot this? We shot this from August 2019 to March 2020, and then we stopped for COVID and we finished in September 2020. And in September, how much more did you have to do? It was just a week, a week of work. Oh, God. So yeah. lucky because I'm like, when did he shoot this? There's no way he could have shot this during no, the pandemic. No, 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 we were yeah. super, super lucky. We got 112 days in before we before we stopped. And then we had one week uh, to, to pick up in September. Oh, man, it's great. Uh, how was it with the actors with a lot mm-hmm. of this material? You know, once again, we're in this time. There's the, you know, the use of the N-word, the hard mm-hmm. R, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> is, you know. You, you know, it's interesting. The hard R actually wasn't wasn't a problem. You know, I think the... The cast and the crew, one, we had a therapist, a guidance counselor on set at at all times. And we Mm -hmm. began the process by telling people that that was a resource they could use. We also told people, this isn't a typical set. Yes, the director calls action and cut, but but if there's anything you are doing that you feel uncomfortable about, or if there's anything you're doing that you feel is getting the better of you, stop. You know, stop. You can stop the whole thing. And we will take whatever time uh, we need for you to gather yourself and decide if you can continue doing what it is we are doing. I think that really empowered people. Um, so the, the hard R wasn't an issue because everyone understood we were making this thing uh, together. There were some people who didn't want to uh, uh, be in the show or tackle the material because they felt it was too much for them. And, and I also respected, uh, respected those choices um, as well. So it was working with the actors. I think we created an environment where everyone was always reminded that the most important thing was for them to remain whole. And so we didn't have a a lot of issues uh, in that regard. How did you find Cora? Uh, It was through a a long, long process. I mean, we searched uh, all over the States, of course, and then all over the world. Um, I believe casting is a meritocracy. If if you uh-huh. send a tape in and, yeah. and you can show me you were the character, the part is yours. But uh, with Tuso, because she was um, South African, we brought uh-huh. her in for, for additional callbacks. Um, and it came down to her and another young woman uh, who was going to be a really big, uh, big movie star someday soon, uh, a New York-based woman uh, by way of North Carolina. And uh, Tuso, uh, Tuso got the part. 
Yeah. And she just, I knew that at the beginning of the series, very typical for my work, the main character wasn't going to be able to verbally express herself as much as the characters around her. And so I needed somebody who communicate a lot, you know, with their posture, with their eyes and somebody who could go from looking 16 in one episode to looking like 66 in another episode. It's crazy. I mean, she looks 12, like, during yeah. most of it, you know, but, uh, the uh, nonverbal stuff she does all through this is amazing. You know, yeah, I mean, I mean, we're talking about brutality and show yeah. versus tell. That that scene in Tennessee is one of my favorites, where mm. Ridgeway is telling her the story of what happened to her friend Lovey. Yeah. And instead yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. staying on him, and instead of cutting to what he's describing, we just go to her, mm-hmm. and her face just does all the work. And it's one unbroken t- uh, take. Every tear that drops is real. I mean, she just like. She just has a muscle, man. You know what I, I love about your work, Barry, is you get s- such great performances out of actors, you know, and you really do. Uh, the camera does respect and uses all of that, but it's married by this rich palette. Hmm. You know, it's, man, I mean, some of the shots in here, it's like looking at paintings, hmm. <laughs> you know. Thank you, Brent. Where does that vision start with, you know, uh, are you bringing that in the beginning? Do you have that type of thing? Or, or is some of it imagined in the moment where it's like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I, we have to look at this a completely different way. Yeah, so some of it's imagined in the moment. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of it's preparation. You know, I've got a really good team uh, working with me right now. Um, you know, some folks who I've been working with since my very first film, uh, mm-hmm. James Laxon, the cinematographer. He and I were roommates in college. And Beautiful when we start work. these shows, you know, yeah. our life becomes like a mood board. You know, I have all these paintings and photos up in my office. He has all the same ones up in his office and and even new ones. And we're just, we're thinking of the show and we're looking at all these references and we're trying to coalesce into what we think the picture of the thing that we're creating is, especially Mm -hmm. going from an adaptation. It's kind of dope because you read the words on the page and you're already seeing things. And it's like, okay, how can I manifest? How can I control the elements at my disposal to get this picture out of my head onto the screen? Uh, and then Mark Freeberg, our production designer um, as well, you know, he does a great job of just going deep and trying to build the world. You know, we did pre-production at this elementary school in Savannah and it was set up like these military barracks. And so mm-hmm. the art department had one wing, James and I had another wing, costumes had another wing. And you could just walk down these halls like you're going to recess in elementary school and wow, all that's... the walls are covered with photos, with references. And, uh, and it was nice because you could see us all just walk these halls and the images started to coalesce. Um, but then sometimes you get on set and it does come to you spontaneously. The very first instance of brutality in the show, the boy is forced to read the Declaration of Independence. James and I were at lunch uh, with the Steadicam operator, uh, Jared Morgan, a really great young guy, and realized, I, I think we need to make this. I, I want to lean into the tension and I want there to be something very truthful about this. I don't want any cuts. From the moment they come off mm. that porch, moment that boy recites the declaration, I don't want any cuts. And then when you realize the brutality is about to begin, I want to disassociate ourselves from that reality. And that's when Mm -hmm. we went to the portraits and that kind of happened on the day. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think it's always about like preparation, 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 because I grew up with a football background. Yeah, me too, actually. (laughs) After you run those first 10 scripted plays, now it's like, okay, cool. Let's see what the defense is doing. Exactly. And now let's start audibling. So yeah, it it sort of functions something like that. With 116 days, man, there's just no way to prep 
um, all that work. And so you do get into the point where you have to move more through intuition than, than through planning. But that intuition is informed by all that preparation and Absolutely. everything. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's informed intuition, if you will, you know, uh, which is kind of, it's really the best kind. That's how you kind of get in the zone, I think, too. You know, when you're in that space where you don't know where these ideas are coming from, but they're the right ideas, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, by mm-hmm. that that preparation. Can you talk about as a director for people that may want to do this type of thing or interested in it? Um, I love hearing all this because many directing isn't just or making a film. It isn't just trying to make something look real. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. people, it's not just saying, how can I make this look real? You're bringing in you're bringing an interpretation to this, you know, exactly. you're, cre- you're creating something for us that is an artist's vision of something. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So people kind of understand that difference, you know, of. Yeah. Yeah. I think as, especially uh, for, for the way that, that we work. And when I say we, mm-hmm. I'm talking about primarily yeah. myself and the cinematographer, James Laxton, you know, we're, we're after a feeling, you know, yes. we're after a feeling. Right. And, and we're always starting with what does the scene feel like? You know, what is the character feeling right now and what role can the camera play in translating that feeling to the audience? And sometimes with this show, where where things really began to click was when we could really start to understand it's not about this one character's feeling. It's about how these characters are sharing the space. Um, And I think some of the more successful moments in the show are when you see the camera and the actors, they're sort of working together to create this feeling. Um, or as you said, to translate um, this feeling of of whatever's happening in the moment, whatever's happening in the story, you know, into sounds and images. Uh, because I think what you're talking about, um, and this is what I think about of directing, it, it's, it's not just enough to tell a story. Right. Because if I wanted to tell a story, then I would do what Colson does and just write it down. I think that's probably sure. the most um, the most uh, direct way to tell a story. What we're doing you know, this is how it's in images, you know, there's something else. There's a different level of uh, evocation that is, that is happening. And so we're always trying to be aware of, yes, this is what the scene is about, but how does it feel? And then to work from that feeling to make uh, craft choices. I was going to say creative choices, but to make craft choices, because that's what's so hard about this shit, man. Right. You have to figure out how to shoot it. <laughs> you got to figure out how to shoot it. You, yeah. you, you're, you're losing the light. You know, right. the, take, the take takes, you know, two and a half minutes to get to the whole scene. If you're trying to do it all as a master shot, you might get five passes at it. You know, whereas if you break it up, you can maybe cover a bit more ground, get a few more takes in. So all of that science, <laughs> all of that scientific math is happening. Um, and yet you still have to be somebody who's working from feeling. So yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I, I used to teach uh, film courses uh, uh, before I made Moonlight, to be honest, and then I got too busy. But it is something that, that I really love doing because trying to demystify what it is we do, what we do, I think is really important. Because when I first got into this, I come from a very poor background, mm-hmm. uh, just poor as far as resources go. Yeah. And so I, I was way behind craft wise. Um, when it when it came to to doing this and not understanding the craft, it was limit it was limiting my creativity. It was stifling mm-hmm. my voice, and so I, th- I think it is important to speak about craft to a certain degree, but not be beholden to it. I completely agree with that, you know. And I love your notions about storytelling. You know, for people that are interested in writing or directing that kind of thing, especially you don't have to get stuck with linear storytelling. There's this what I call it a plot driven beginning, middle, and end. Sometimes, 
like I feel good stories are just following a character's arc. And, and many mm. times at the end of some stories, and you do this with your work too, is I think you get kind of a gestalt is mm. what the end is, what the movie is about. Not so much a resolution, but a gestalt. You come to a resolution of feelings about this whole thing. <laughs> you know? Man, that's you beautiful, know? bro. Why, why, why am I doing this podcast so late in the press run? Because I, I need to use that. <laughs> no, it's... <laughs> Yeah, I, I I agree, man. That's the that's the denouement. Is that gestalt? Exactly. You know? Yes. When I was when I was in film school, when I was trying to catch up to doing this, I realized very quickly the films that all my peers were watching that were extremely linear and, and plot driven. Yes. Right. They're also very very big budget. And I was like, oh shit, I, I I can't do that. I can't do that right now. And so I stumbled into all these foreign films, which were these films that seemed to be made from. You know, it was like the by any means necessary. What resources do we it's have? Like, how do they know what scene is next? I don't understand this. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> right. I don't understand it, but I but I right. feel it. But exactly. I feel it. And, exactly and that right. was what it just it just jumped into my head. It jumped into my gut. And I was like, oh, this is a this is an interesting way of working. I can do this. And I began doing it. And now it's sort of been this weird trajectory where now I'm I'm sort slowly drifting back to a more linear sort of like yeah. plot driven kind of storytelling, but doing it my way, um, which I think is this very Frank, the show is a very Frankenstein kind of show. Cause I do think you're on a journey. It's a road movie in some ways it's very epic. And yet it's still some, some episodes you're like, wait, you know, am I moving forward? I might not be moving forward in story terms, but I'm moving way forward in, in emotion. That's way exactly right. For it and intellectual, spiritual development. Um, and I think, I think there's a place for both those things. I think, especially with a show like this, it can house both those things. A gestalt, bro. Okay, I'm going to use that one. <laughs> well, the North Carolina episode is a good example. You mm-hmm. know, that, yeah, it could, for, it could push the plot further, maybe, but also it does something to Cora. It, it does something to Cora. Yes. And that was one of the ones where I went to, I went to punch Colson. Cause I'm like, she's in the attic for 70 pages. Yeah. I, 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 I can't have a four hour um, episode right. with her in the attic. It's not Anne Frank for Christ's sake. Exactly. I can't yes. even have a 60 minute episode, which just her alone in, in the attic. I would have to do things, you know, she'd have to have visions and be talking to people. And that would kind of break like what we're doing here. Um, uh, but I, I, the limitation became an opportunity. I was like, oh, she's forced to go through this process of learning about maternity, of, of having to live out the act of mothering. Because here's this little girl. And the little girl is tough as hell and almost doesn't need mothering, you know, which is yeah. great because Cora is also very headstrong. I think she doesn't need anybody. And That's so I right. thought it was a, a really wonderful opportunity. Man, there are some scenes in that episode uh, that we filmed and we had to, we had to cut that, which is so after, after Martin goes and, and dynamites the mine, he comes back home and he calls the, he calls Cora and Grace down from the attic and he's sitting there. He's sweaty. He's covered in mud. He's just rocking. And he tells this three and a half minute monologue about how his father more or less forced this legacy into Absolutely. him. You know, he doesn't think he is strong enough to do it. Mm-hmm. And at the very end, Grace looks at him and she goes, you, you feel like a slave. And Cora looks at her and goes, ooh. <laughs> and he just looks at her It doesn't say anything. And they yeah. go back up in the attic. And we had to cut it, bro. We had to cut it. We had yeah. acted a great job to this guy, Damon, Damon Harriman. But I, I do think you're, you're right. I mean, she's 
physically stuck, but emotionally, uh, intellectually, I think she's making these huge leaps and took so much so that she sacrifices herself at the end of that episode. Cause she comes down and tells a little girl to stay. Yeah. There's yeah. You don't need a lot of plot, you know, to be telling that story. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I teach writing and that kind of stuff. And I try to get writers to understand the difference between plot and story. And I say, these are my definitions. They're not necessarily the definitions out there, but I would say the, the, the story to me is the emotional journey a character takes and the plot are events to tell that story, mm. you know, and sometimes you can have movies with very little plot and a lot of story. And sometimes you can have movies with a lot of plot and very little story. So well, what do you mean by that? And I say, well, give, I'll give you the example. I'll use two Spielberg movies, Close Encounters and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Same director. I said, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a plot driven movie. All kinds of stuff's happened to Indiana Jones, you know, snakes come in, all this, the room. Mm-hmm. but he's basically the same Indiana Jones at the beginning of the movie as he is at the end. So there's mm-hmm. very little story in my mind, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but that's kind of the form of the Saturday morning serial, which it's based on. You don't, mm-hmm. it doesn't require a lot of story. That's why they're hard to write because it's hard mm-hmm. to write good plot twists that keeps an audience engaged. That's not yes, easy to it do. Is. It's really different. Close Encounters, on the other hand, there's very little plot, you know, we're, you know, Richard Driver sees something and then he goes to a mountain. Like, that's about it in terms of plot. But he is almost a different Richard Dreyfus in almost every single scene of that movie than he mm. was before. The story is amazingly complex of the journey that this character takes. The mm. character at the end leaves his family and his kids. The character in the beginning would never leave his kids to go on a spaceship with aliens. Yeah. It's crazy, you know? Yeah. The, and so the, the, the Larry yeah. Wilmore school of writing. I'm here <laughs> yes, for it. Exactly. I'm here for it. No, no, that, that's fucking perfect. I mean, it, but understanding those tools, you can write a scene with a girl in an attic because you know it's not doesn't have to be plot driven. Well, and you know what, right. bro? And, and I think that the wave that this series goes on, because the first two and a half episodes, I see the first three episodes, yeah, so much plot, so much plot, exactly. some story, so much plot. And you think it's this thriller that you're exactly. on. And you go, wait, is this a thriller? Because then you wait. get to that middle section and <laughs> yes, now we switch. Yes. And now yeah. it's all story, very That's little right. plot. Because That's exactly they're, just, right. they're just walking from A to B. And on this walk, you're getting so. I mean, holy shit! Cora, Cora encounters basically Gandhi. You yes, know, Cora yes. Encounters Gandhi. Like in, yes, in the form of Jasper. Yes, what is this? What is this mini movie inside of this? That in was a mini movie. Yes. You, you, you know what happened? Larry? <laughs> that, that episode was intended to be one episode, Tennessee. Uh-huh. Um, but this this Calvin Leon Smith, who plays Jasper, this wonderful he was young phenomenal. actor, phenomenal. He showed up, and it was so clear to me. Because those things were in the script, but yeah. there's a way to film them to where they're 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 more plot than story. Yes. Jasper does this, and then he does right. that, and he does yep. this. And, but 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 the way he does it, yeah, the way he looks at her, yeah, the way he speaks to her, this is story. Yeah. She is watching him, and she is yeah. learning. She a learned way from to his be. example. Yeah, it's yeah, why yeah. she's going to be able to sit at that table in the next episode and just wait and wait. And wait because she knows there's gonna come a moment. Mm. I mean, and and so in in filming the episode, we just kept changing the uh, the visual language of how we were filming him, and sort of allowing these moments to to just live and play. Because in living his life, he's giving Cora an example of how to buffer herself, yeah, how to strengthen herself to sort of withstand and endure all this bullshit that Ridgeway is, is spitting. And yeah. the, the man created an episode. 
that you're right, it's not heavy on plot, but oh my God, so heavy on the Larry Wilmore yeah. school of writing <laughs> is now in session. That's right, I got fired for it at the time. Yeah. But, but, I, but, but, but you know, the cool right, thing but is, I, didn't care. I, I do think it's, it's a privilege to be working um, at, 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 in the time that I'm working in because so much of these very staid modes of story formats they're all just peeling away. I agree. They're all just peeling away. And so you can have, true. you can have a show that at times is like a Saturday morning serial. And then at other times it's like the off, 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 off Broadway production, exactly. you know, of, uh, of two yeah. pigeons in a cat in a can, you know? Yes. Um, and not that I want to make two pigeons in a can, but it's a hell of a title. I might have to get on that. It's very uh, Brechtian. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's real fascinating to me. And that actor, what was his name? Calvin Leon Smith. I mean, he just were there like special effects. Did he get that skinny? There, there were special effects. There were there was makeup that was applied on okay. set, and then we did do special effects on him um, in in post production. Um, but what I'm really uh, happy about with his performance is he he didn't. Uh, I I I was in love with this idea of extended extended moments in time. Uh-huh. You know, I think when you insert an edit into a scene. Not that these two pieces of time can't both be authentic, but you know they're not the same piece of time. And so I kept trying to find ways to, as opposed to cutting to new shots, create new shots. Because where the actor is, if it's it's the same across the duration of a take. And uh, Calvin just did such, I almost called him Jasper. He did such a good job of really living sort of like in in the moment that this uh, this character was having. And I think because of that, you know, the way time passes in that episode is different than the way time passes in all the other episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the other actor, who's the actor that played Hero? Hero, Hero. Are you talking about Caesar or? or oh, no, Homer. They, You're talking about Homer. Oh, Homer, not yeah, Hero. You keep saying Homer. Hero. I, was like, I keep saying about? Hero and I meant to yeah, say yeah. Homer. Yeah. Because yeah, he is not my hero, bro. <laughs> um, well, yeah, uh, Homer, that was going to be my point. Yeah, he's played by Chase Chase Dillon, man, who is uh, this young dude who he's he's 11 now. He was 10 at the time of filming, which is um, which is thinking back on it. Pretty, pretty extraordinary. Um, Wait, yeah, Ch- he Chase was Dillon. 10 years old, 10 years old, man, 10 years old. That's crazy. Yeah, it is, man. And, and, you know, he's got a really strong family and he's a really smart kid because some of this stuff you know, I'm sure it was quite tricky for him uh, to do. But, you know, Joe Edgerton, who plays Ridgeway, um, is also a director. And so I, I really felt like that was important because, you know, once you call action, you know, the, the director isn't doing anything. It's, it's incumbent upon the actors in the scene, you know, to find the truth, navigate the space. And I think Joe was really good at helping Chase, like, understand the process and 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 then responding to what Chase was doing because sometimes it's it's not a typical process, you know. Once you set a kid loose, you know that that that, that kid is going to do what they do. Uh, and Joel was really good about adjusting, you know, and, and reflecting the energy that, that Chase was giving. Well, he had such a stillness about him. I thought maybe he was an older actor who, you know, was. Let's yeah, just I will a, say he, he looks like he's ten going on seventy five. Yes, so. <laughs> he's this old soul, you know. Uh, yeah, it, it is such a this amazing journey, the whole thing. Uh and uh I guess you could the Gulliver's Travels Odyssey of it all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How much of, of that to you as a storyteller is part of this, or is that just something that just is alongside it? 
Yeah, to, to me, it was just alongside it. You know, yeah, I, I do think that's what that, I, thought, yeah. I, th- I think that in the novel, those uh, those associations are much more present because, again, it's more telling uh, and less right. showing. Um, and, and in the beginning, we try to hold on to to quite a bit of it. Um, but then I think it only it, it lived with Caesar. And so I think once Caesar is, is no longer driving the narrative, mm-hmm. you know, that element of it kind, kind of peels away. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was one of those things where I thought there was, I thought the association was beautiful and, and I love that he got to deliver that line um, in the fantasy moment, you know, be strong, saith my heart. Yeah. You know, I am a soldier. I have seen more sights than this. Um, and I, I thought there was something, even for me, uh, I took that line personally. I thought, um, mm-hmm. I, I agree, you know, I agree. Um, and we have to be strong um, and tell this story. Um, it was the way it, it, I processed it for myself. Do you think it's important for Black storytellers now to tell these types of stories? Is I, I think so. I think absolutely. Um, um, I don't think everyone has to watch them. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's where where I'll, I'll draw a line. You know, I completely understand and get that for some folks, these stories are too much. Um, they have enough in their their daily lives and they know enough about the history that they don't need to re-engage. Um, I think for me as a storyteller, one, I felt a personal prerogative to use my voice and to use, as Miss Toni Morrison refers to, to use the language um, to reclaim and recontextualize and honor um, my ancestors. That was a very personal thing uh, for me. And if there are other folks out there who uh, have the same impulse that they can engage this work and it can be something that they can, they can hold on to or, or look towards to either recontextualize for themselves, reclaim for themselves or reprocess, you know, some of these things, as you said earlier, so much of our ancestors images and narratives have been lost um, to time. have been lost to the historical record. There are academics who are doing wonderful work to correct that. Um, but again, we're watching more than we're reading right now. And so I do think it's important for Black storytellers to take up these images because I do believe that um, uh, to a large degree, what I'm saying, I can't say always, but I can say in my experience, most often we are going to take a different kind of care with these images of our ancestors than maybe other folks would. And there seems to be a, a conspiracy. You, you know, create- let me come back. Sure. Not even not that other folks would, that other folks can. There's just something about being on set, looking at someone and seeing your grandfather, seeing your mother, seeing your auntie, seeing your cousin, that inherently is going to force you, not even force you, it's going to be instinctual to look past the surface of either what they're doing or what's being done to them and see the whole of them. And I think these really lovely things come out of that. I'll just give you a really quick example and I'll let you get back to your thought. No, in the last good. episode, there's this burial scene. We had all these advisors and, you know, all the shells were on the ground, just a really wonderful, um, wonderful image. And I remember wanting the camera to be outside. I didn't want to invade the space of what these folks were doing. And this actor, Larry Cooper, who plays his character, Jockey, he just got down on his knees, unprompted, and place his head to the soil and he inhales the earth. And there was just something so just like, so beautiful. I, I, I cried. I actually cried, man. And it's just one of those things why I say not that, not that other folks would, but I think can, you know, you know, I don't know that other folks can. So it's just different. It's just different. It's yeah. Just different. Cause I'm not mad at Spielberg directing the color purple, you know, and at exactly. that time, 
what a great filmmaker to bring that to life. I was not mad at that at all. You My know? grandma had this mm-hmm. color purple um, sort of like it was a woven like thing of the of the poster that she had framed. It was on her wall for the entirety of my life, the entirety of my life. Um, yeah, so so I, I I agree, and also too, I made I made Moonlight. You know what I'm saying? And so I can't talk out, out both sides of my mouth, you know, but you do the work, you do all the work and you empower the folks, you know, whose story uh, it is that you're telling, you know, the people who can stand on set and actually see themselves in the other characters um, without this remove. Point, point well taken. Larry Wilmore, School of <laughs> Cinema. So funny. I was kidding. Well, we're both doing it right here, you know. Um, I think there's a... Another observation I have right now, there seems to be a a conspiracy of creativity, I'll call it, between more than just American Blacks, but kind of a global Black attack, you know, led by British voices, uh, uh, African, now South African, I should point out, you know. And that seems to be interesting, too, because the these experiences that we're dramatizing are particularly American, but not um, unique, <laughs> you know what I mean? No, I, I do know what you mean. You know, especially as someone who's who's traveled, um, I know exactly what you mean. You know, when when I leave these shores, you know, I'm no longer African American. Right. You know, if I'm walking through Brussels, you know, on site, you know, I'm black or I'm African. Um, you know, the root of right. uh, of, of 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 my people is what is is what is most visibly seen. I like to refer to it as the black attack. Um, <laughs> you know, it's 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 the, it's the same with everything. You know, yes. I think especially with filmmaking, the tools of this medium are very expensive. And even though there have been pioneers like like Brother Michelle, I think you think of Gordon Parks uh, in his era. Um, there have been people, the vanguard, who break through. But by and large, these tools, um, uh, whether through uh, commercial capital, but we just don't have access to them at the same time that other folks have access to them. But just like with the instrumentations that ultimately created jazz, once we do have access to them, all these new ways of working, these new ways of seeing, these new ways of creating, of course, bubble to the surface, they flourish. And you're right, globally right now, Black folks have the tools. Um, and uh, I love that we live in a moment right now, you know, especially just speaking of this cycle with these limited series, whether there's our show or Steve McQueen's show, Small Axe, or, or Michaela Coel's show, I May Destroy You. These are three completely different, completely different articulations, you know, of what it means to be a Black person in the world right now. Very niche depictions of each each of us three our own personal representations of what it means to be a black person in the world right now. And there's something so fucking beautiful about that. But man, I'm just, I, I keep a note when I'm doing these podcasts. Cause um, you know, one, I want to make sure I'm tracking what you're saying and I want to learn some shit, the black attack, bro. I'm gonna put that on the switch. <laughs> well, attack. also that, you know, we're not just defined by uh, white victimhood, but also exactly. the liberation of black individualism, you know, and ideologies and those types of things and personalities and all those things, which is so nice too. They can exist outside of that, especially in historical context, which I think you're going to see more of, which like small acts did my heart good. I mean, the, 
episode where it's just them dance, you know, the the party. Love I'm is like, rock, bro. I'm Love like, that's what rock, I'm talking bro. about. That is what Love I'm talking rock, about right bro. there. Yeah. 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 Steve, uh, Steve put his foot in that one, man. He put his foot yeah, in that Yeah, he did. One. He did. He really did. What type of, of, of films would you like to continue doing? I'll make a distinction. Do you, do you like this big scale and these tools that you uh, are able to work with here? Or, or do you like more of that intimate type of moonlight, um, which I'm assuming was more of an intimate process? You know, it's interesting. I've tried to to, to blend the two uh, on this one, at least. This, this felt the most like making Moonlight, to be honest. It didn't feel like making Bill Street. This felt the most like making Moonlight, because even though we had much more resources, they were spread out. Mm-hmm. over a much longer period of time. That's so, true in all these episodes. That's Exactly. True. Yeah. There were days where it felt like, oh shit, we, we are running and gunning. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we, got, we just got to get this. Um, right. You know, you know, we, we got to find a way to, you know, to, to what do you say, make a dollar out of 15 cents. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, but it's interesting. I, I kind of have a, an appetite for both now. Uh, I think they, you know, I mean, I'm not Steven Spielberg and, 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 and won't ever be, but I think you look at his career and you see that. You know, as an artist, there are times when, you know, he's he's chewing off the real big block of wood. And then there are other moments when it's just something very small and intimate. You know, I, I got a couple ideas I'm working on right now uh, because I do feel this itch to return. It's very, very, a very, very small, just romantic film. Yeah, that's great. Uh, about consenting adults. Um, and also, too, because sometimes it's, it's actresses. There are people that I want to work with, you know, and I'm like, well... You know, I haven't seen this person do this thing. It's like, oh, well, dummy, you know, why don't you create? (laughs) Why don't you create a vessel for them to be able to do that thing? Um, Right. And so I think, I don't know that I'll ever do anything as, as, big as this again although i'm doing this lion king movie i don't know right now but i have an idea barry that you hey, might want to want to do hey the, the larry wilmore school, <laughs> production school of, uh, of, of big ideas um but yeah I, I think a little bit of both going forward is going to be what's what's best for me because emotionally mm-hmm. this one took a lot out of me I, can I can't imagine doing this four times in a row that would not be be healthy yeah that just wouldn't be you said romantic Comedy or romantic drama? No, I mean, I got drama, man. You know mm-hmm. me, man. You know me. I the, the, the shit I find funny is um is not what, <laughs> what other people find funny. And and episode right. two, to me, I laugh my head off when when Ridgeway uh, sees my man using the magic shave, and he goes, ah. this is the, he goes, it's a depilatory, and then he goes, d. Pillatory and <laughs> cracks me up every right. time. It's, it's so sassy. Um, but, and I'm uh, thinking, but, get that off your face. It's been on too long. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's so funny. There seem to be some. I, I'll use the word anachronisms in the in the thing too. Were you concerned mm-hmm. about that at all? Well, and I know some of it is artistic in some ways. Like I'm like, wait. What period is this train station in exactly? Where yeah. are we right now? You know, yeah. I I think sometimes mm-hmm. it's fun to deploy that stuff. You know, yeah. when uh when when it's a, you know, sometimes the absence of something um makes the presence of it just the brief appearance of it. You know, that much yeah. more impactful. You yeah, know, my yeah, favorite yeah. filmmaker is this French director named Claire Denis, and she has this film called Friday Night. And it's a very, very, you know, it's romantic, but the style she works in in that film, it's almost neorealist. And then these two characters, it's about these characters they meet, they have a one night stand, and then they go out to dinner after, they're total strangers, they meet in a transit strike. And the woman is sitting at a pizza shop and her and her lover 
uh, this, this encountered lover sitting there and she looks down at the pizza and the anchovies on the pizza turn into a smile and it That's winks. Hilarious. That's great. And it's so, it just, it makes no sense, but it's perfect, but it's perfect. And so I do think these, these uh, anachronisms can sometimes, I don't know, it can be a bit of levity. It could just be a burst of, a burst of light, you know, or in the counter, you know, it can be a burst uh, of horror. So yeah, I'll lean into those things. You know, when she gets to Tennessee in the writer's room, we decided Cora is manifesting all these things, you know, I think it's a bit, you know, progressive. She's controlling the narrative to a certain degree. She gets to North Carolina. It's damned because she has a block. You know, this is why when we come back with Grace now, Grace gets to the same dam, but everything about her is an opening. So now the fireflies come through and she just goes on through. Cora wasn't ready for that. She needed that block. She wasn't ready to leave Caesar behind and she needed to be in this attic and meet this little girl. So she could go on this journey of mothering. And so when Cora gets to the Tennessee station, she's just been through hell. So yeah, there's charcuterie and there's wine and there's a mural, there's subway <laughs> yeah. tile. It's like a French exactly. bistro. Subway tile. I'm like, wait, where are they exactly? Are, like they the are they in Are they in 125th Street? Where are they? You know, yeah. I, I think that for, for as heavy as the show is at times, it's mm-hmm. also, I think in a very grounded way, playful at the same time. You know, I, I describe it as a horrific uh, fairy tale. You know, it's like the Brothers Grimm. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think there's, I think the housing of the show is strong enough that it can withstand that. It can contain it all. Yeah. I think the New York Times said you, uh, I'm paraphrasing some, something like you give us this beautiful picture without prettying things up, which I thought that's really accurate, you know, because um, like I, I said, there's the type of brutality, not just the actual physical brutality, but the mental brutality and things that are going on. Yet these gorgeous pictures of it, you know, this, the dichotomy of that, it's really, really striking. You, you know, that, that, was, that was an interesting one because, you know, we filmed this thing entirely in the state of Georgia, which mm. was a slaveholding oh, wow. state. Yes. And so, um, you know, we were doing these scenes and this tree has been here for hundreds of years. Mm. You know? That tree's seen a lot. It's yeah. seen a lot. The sun is setting. The Spanish moss on it is gorgeous. You know, is, is it now incumbent upon me to make it not pretty? to make it not even pretty, to make it not beautiful. You know, the beauty was there. It was always there while these horrific things were taking place. Um, to me, it would have been even less truthful to try to do whatever kind of magic we could to remove that beauty from the setting. Um, we just turned the camera on. It's such a natural metaphor for the country, you know, in so many different bruh, ways. And the bruh. thing that, that people have tried to wrestle with you know, and they seem to attack it from the wrong way, where they want to just maintain the beauty of that, of the hazy rear view, and not the, you know, some of the ugly of the of the windshield. I say, you know, <laughs> looking forward to that, you know. But all of it is what makes this this, you know, all of it. It's not just one thing. And I also I did appreciate. I think it was yeah, the North Carolina. I did appreciate those white characters in it too. You know, I'm seeing that that character wrestle with something, you know, even Ridgeway is complicated for the type of character that he is. He's not just, he's not just that simple type of person that we see like that too. And, uh, and his father, such a great character also, you know, I appreciated that. You know, I thought, you know, this character clearly is obviously horrific and evil. Um, 
but I, I think we live in a time right now where, you know, we need to show how and why folks yeah. become evil. I think that's the best way to, there might be somebody in our lives who was on that path. I mean, especially right now, there are all these people, this, this extremism and all these little, little hotspots and these secret groups and whatnot, you know, maybe there's somebody in, in, in your, in your household who was sort of drifting towards that. This is how this stuff happens. I also was interested too, in looking at his childhood because you know, I haven't spoken about it um, uh, as much, but the age that Ridgeway is in the Great Spirit episode is more or less the age that Cora is in the main storyline. And yet look at how different the world is for the two of them. Look at how different the choices they are allowed to make are. I thought there was something very interesting about this mirror between the two of them, because clearly, you know, he ends up one way um, and through this this struggle to reconcile the sense of abandonment with her mother and this journey to freedom, she ends up another way. Um, but I thought looking at that, because again, there's two different Americas sometimes. Um, it was a, it was a way to even unearth a little bit more about the character and say something about the, the country we live in. Yeah. I'll say just one last time. It's so funny because just wrestling with the idea, as you were talking about nature versus nurture, and it's funny how they, they both come out in a lot of these stories too, where, you know, where the white people are insisting, that nurture has nothing to do with this. It's all nature, the the order that we're all in. This is all predetermined by God. There's a destiny here. We are meant to be masters, you know. And and the evil that I am, you know, laying upon you has nothing to do with my upbringing. This is out of my hands, you know, which is kind of this interesting, uh, this whole thing. I'd rather, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, I think it's also tough giving uh, reasons why people are evil too. Like I have a problem with both of those things. Like that's why Shakespeare to me, uh, Iago said it best when he just said, I am not what I seem, Mm. you know? (laughs) And sometimes it's as simple as that, you know, I am not what I seem. Both those cats, Homer and Ridgeway are such enigmas to me because you're right. Nature versus nurture. How does this cat end up this way? Doesn't quite explain it. How does he end up this person? Doesn't you know? explain it. How does he end but 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 you yeah. is like, what what does Omar say? Well, my man, not Omar, what's my man say on the wire? You you want it to be one way, but it's the other way. Yeah. Know, we assume he grew up in this cell of hatred, but no, it's actually the other way. It's the other way. Yeah, hu- human nature is the is the little bit of thing in there that just makes everything <laughs> more fucked up than just being able to understand it completely, you know. But it's it's very interesting. That's why we got to keep writing these things and keep making them. Yes, sir. I will. Barry I will just do went my off. Part. Wait, he was thinking about something. What were you thinking there? Uh, no, no, no. I was just thinking again about, um, you know, about what, because I often end up talking about, you know, oh, this is a show is about the past, but it's very relevant to the present and this idea of American exceptionalism and just the extreme divide, um, you know, between, you know, what it is and what it ain't right now. Um, in this country, um, and just trying to understand and making the show and then dealing with this character and all the characters in the show, like, like how, how can we, how can we arrive at a point where we can look at the shit that's happening right now, you know, look at all these folks in Congress or all these people we're electing and see, well, would you say the line from from, from, from Iago? I am not what I seem. I am not what I seem. Then what am I? You know, I think so often we just accept what the thing seems 
And I right. think where, where, where the real progress or the real, the real progression I'll say is, is let's get past that. Let's mm-hmm. get past what things seem and let's just continue and continue to look and evaluate, reevaluate, recontextualize so that we can get to the point where maybe we can start to see what things actually are, you know, to see what it, what it really is. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what the process of making the show was for me. I appreciate you being here and giving me uh, this time. I wanted to ask you one more question because there's some people, I don't know who the groups are, but they're concerned about the, these types of depictions. I think some mm-hmm. people call it pornification of black uh, tragedy and that type yeah, uh, of stuff. But, but black trauma porn. That's, black that's, trauma that's porn. Yeah. 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 I, I don't agree with that. I have a different opinion on that, but what is, what is your take on that? And how do you, was, was that in the air at all when you were making it or is it, is it kind of around now and do you have a reaction to it? Yeah. It wasn't in the air when we were making it, um, mm-hmm. well, at least that, that I was aware of one, I was just too damn busy. Yeah. Um, but, but then, yeah, especially this year, um, it's definitely been something that I've heard quite loud. I think because uh, of the George Floyd thing, it was out there so much, you know? Yeah. And, and it's partly why I wanted to make this as a TV show and not a feature film. I wanted it to be an elective process, uh, for the viewer. And if there was anything that they were, they were seeing that they weren't comfortable with, they would have paused, fast forward, um, et cetera. Uh, I think it has to do with intent. I think it has to do with intent. Um, and I think it has to do with context. I think we can't consider any image that involves our ancestors or any image um, that involves depictions of trauma as pornographic. Um, because I think if we do assume that default, then we might participate in the erasure of anything having to exactly. do with the story of our ancestors, That's which unfortunately um, largely has a lot to do um, with enduring and, and overcoming this trauma. Um, and so I do think people's concerns are valid because I can't say for anyone else, where's the line that you have to draw for what you can handle, what you can process. Um, and so I think it takes uh, intent and contextualization. And so when the, the voices first appeared and I heard them, um, you know, it, it kind of hurt because I felt like, oh, this is not what I'm doing. You know, I, right. I wouldn't knowingly willfully do this to you. Um, and yet I can't say what was done to that person in engaging images like this in other instances. And so I get it, man. I get it. Yeah. For me, I think there's a distinction between sympathy and empathy. And mm. I think it's easier for people to have sympathy for something, but until you can truly understand and experience someone else's pain, can you get to the empathy part? Which is mm. which is where change I think happens through empathy more mm. than sympathy, I believe. But there you go. We have a great empathetic filmmaker here. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, bro. I appreciate Barry, it. I appreciate talking to you. you. You're such a great dude, and I just love, like I said, I just love your stuff. It's it's really watching like artwork on the wall that's moving. I mean, it really is. It's just Thank great. You, bro. But it, and it's so uh, thoughtful and just sensitive. Everybody see Underground Railroad. As Barry says, you don't don't watch it all in one sitting. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> some of it's kind of tough, but it's it's all very interesting and based on that great book. I wish you the best, and let's stay in touch and let me know what's going on. Yes, sir. We'll do, man. It's been a pleasure. The pleasure's all mine, Barry Jenkins. Everybody, thanks for stopping by, Barry.